Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and joining me is senior TechCrunch reporter on fintech, Mary Ann Azevedo. Mary Ann, I'm not going to ask you how's it going. I'm just going to ask you, how are you? How is Austin? Yeah, hanging in there. Finally got power back on Monday. I am recuperating from my cold, so I'm doing much better now. Thank you. Happy to be here. We got so many people checking in with the show asking about you. Aww. Everyone's thinking about you, but I'm glad that you've been That's so sweet. <laughs> we are also joined by the wonderful, smart, senior TechCrunch reporter on Venture Capital and co-host of Found, Becca Skutak. Becca, how are you? How's Found going? I'm good. Found is fun. Everyone should listen to Found if they like hearing about all the fun background stories of startups. And maybe you like to hear an embarrassing story from our managing editor, Daryl Etherington, every week, because somehow something embarrassing comes up every time. It's a nice little bonus. So fun show if you like the story behind the startups. I think you should coin the phrase storal and it's just stories about Daryl. That's what we're going to do from now on. I know. That's, that's where I'm at today. Amazing. Well, yes, Found is amazing. It is like one of my favorite shows on the internet, other than Equity, of course. Today, we are going to talk about three big deals, one looking at Africa, one looking at the nursing shortage, and finally, one that's trying to rethink the nugget. So definitely a diverse bunch this week. Then we're getting into our first theme, which is updates on two big news stories that we have not talked about in a while. (laughs) Theme two is all about what's happening with Stripe. And we're going to end with AI as always. But let's start with me. I picked Partech. It closed the largest Africa-focused fund around $263 million this year. And it was originally going to be closing at much less, but got overwhelming interest. This follows up. It's Fund 1, which was closed in 2018. Super exciting to see geographic-focused funds stay in our lives. How do we all feel? I think this is really interesting, too, because this isn't even the final close. Like they raised more in the first close than they thought they were going to raise for the whole thing. And people really thought emerging markets were just going to stumble as sort of the whole like global economic situation soured. So this is such a bright spot. Yeah, I mean, I think CB Insights found, of course, I was looking at it from the fintech lens, but Africa was the only region in the world that saw an uptick in deals last year. And I'm not surprised by that. Although this is these are some big numbers. It is super impressive. I think that Africa is and I've said this before, it reminds me of where LATAM was a few years ago. It's just really growing a lot. It's attracted so much global investor interest in uh, the past few years. There's so much potential there. Yeah. I think this is just so exciting for the region. Really, really interesting. And yeah, first close. So imagine how much they're going to end up with in the end. I totally missed that detail. I'm glad you said that. With this story, I was super excited by the fact that Partech was early. Like their first fund was closed in 2018 and it was around 143 million. 2018 feels like a completely different world, completely different spotlight on Africa compared to now. Marion, was that when LATM was popping off or was 2018 even before that? No, I think it was around the same time that it was starting to take off a little bit. Hard to believe that was like five years ago. I know. It's like a lifetime. What is it? And it's almost like dog years type thing, right? Like in the, right. in the startup or venture world, you know, five years is, feels like so much. So much has gone on since then. But yeah, I mean, 2018, they have they have been in there for a while. My only like hope, if anyone there is listening, is now that they have the largest VC fund dedicated to tech startups in Africa, I want them to back more than just fintech companies. Like I feel like Absolutely. fintech is so synonymous with African tech, which is exciting 
exciting and, and obviously much opportunity, but I don't know the last time we talked about a company from Africa that isn't about fintech. I agree 150%, believe it or not. Well, let's keep with the let's not talk about fintech trend. And Marion, <laughs> you're changing it up for us this week with your deal of the week. Tell us about it. Yeah, I am. This story that uh, really caught my attention was about a startup called ShiftMed, and they've just raised $200 million, which is a lot of money. And it's a labor marketplace, essentially finding, well, they hire nurses and aides to team them up with facilities such as hospitals or skilled nursing facilities to provide them with uh, staff because there's such a huge shortage. I picked this because I have a personal uh, interest in the lack of adequate nursing and aid staff. Both my brother and my mom were in the hospital a lot over the past few years, and it was pretty horrifying. Both of them complained a lot of not being able to reach staff when they needed them urgently and having to wait in excess of 30 minutes for someone to come help them, which is just unacceptable. My mother, who had fallen last summer, said she needed to go to the restroom at one point at a skilled nursing facility. No one came to to help her. It took so long that she just went by herself, which is very, very dangerous. These are just like the minor stories of the horrors that they both faced I'm not going to go into other details, but it became very clear to me. I mean, the shortage is just awful. There's not nearly enough staff and the the patients and the people being cared for are really paying the price. And it's very, very sad. It's very scary. So I was very happy to see this, this raise. And basically, Shift Med, they're headquartered out of Virginia, and they hire the nurses and the aides as actual employees. They're not contractors. Okay. And then they just kind of, you know, team them up with these places that need them. And so I, I just think it's a great model. I hope they continue to grow. Christine Hall wrote the story. She said that they're in 56 markets, working with more than 700 enterprise partners, such as hospitals, skilled nursing, home health, assisted living providers, and that their revenue grew 8x over the last two years. I definitely love stuff like this because this seems like one of those marketplace solutions where it really is win-win for both sides, which I feel like is definitely the like necessary ingredient for a marketplace to really actually survive. So it's nice to see that both the nurses have a benefit of logging on here. It said like guaranteed shifts and sort of really easy to get paid. And I know W-2 is definitely a much easier tax form to eventually file than a 1099 and some of the other contracting type tax forms. And then on the other side, it's like the enterprises, the hospitals, the facilities get much such a benefit here and don't have to pay. I was reading in the story that they were paying traveling nurses sometimes like $10,000 a week just to staff and like hospitals don't have good margins. Like this isn't like a super profitable high margin business. So it's those kind of things that like always stand out to me about marketplaces is like if both sides, it's like both sides should be really wanting to sign on to this. Like that's always such a good sign. My question is like, what gets this company to win? Like $200 million is so much venture capital. I'm not going to lie. When I was prepping, I thought it was 20 million and like it just completely didn't do that extra zero, which maybe is just lack of coffee. But that's so much money. There are so many competitors in the space. Incredible Health, Gale Healthcare Solutions, Bemlo. They all announced funding last year. I don't know. Like, and it's, it's a weird thing because I know it's not a one person takes all. We clearly need a lot of help in this category to your point, Marianne. But yeah, I just don't know when they tip over into being too big to beat or like a mass acquirer, or if that's even the goal or has to be. Yeah. I mean, like you said, that there's so much 
need out there that I don't, it's definitely not a winner takes all space. And uh, to Becca's point though, I don't know a lot about those other competitors, but that W2 model is, yeah. is a very strong, uh, I guess, characteristic uh, in terms of really appealing to, to nurses, like not having to worry about paying self-employment taxes and all that headache that comes with that. And then they even offer, I think, health benefits is one of the things that they offer health benefits, transportation via Uber Health, um, instant or next day pay, you know, all of that. I mean, if you're in this space, it just seems like it could be, it could be just a really great opportunity. And it just makes me so happy because I've never been as horrified, I'll be honest, as I was watching my family members experience what they did. And it just, it just really brought it home to me just what a huge, huge, massive, serious problem this is. Right. It's hard to be like a tourist in this space because you just have to make a difference in order to get anywhere. So it's really refreshing to your point, Marianne. The only thing I was going to say is I did agree with you. The 200 definitely stood out to me. And I was like reading through the story of what they were going to spend it on. And obviously, I mean, no one ever gives us like real answers to that kind of a question. And they said just like expansion, but 200 million is definitely seems like a lot. But I think we're missing like one little piece of the puzzle. There's probably a good reason why it's that much money, but I don't think the company's disclosing it, which made it sound really negative and mysterious. And I I don't I don't think it is. But we're like missing a piece of the puzzle here. You know what is mysterious? People who eat meat. Why do they do it? Why do you guys do it? I feel like all of you guys eat meat. At least I don't know everyone's dietary preferences. And this is my transition into Becca's round of the week for everyone tuning in. Well, I eat meat because I I like it. (laughs) And I'm kind of a picky eater. I've always thought about how if I cut out meat, I only eat meat like once, twice a week. Oh, that's nothing. If I cut it out, it would be hard, I think. You know, I'm not I'm not a big meat eater. But there are times I have to admit, I really crave like a, a burger or, you know, so I can't. I can't help it. So I don't know. That's I haven't really gotten into the faux meat trend, I'll be honest. So Becca, that's why I think I would love to hear more about this new deal of yours. Well, I think what you just said, Marianne, is kind of why this deal is so interesting. So looking at a company called Rebellious, um, they raised 20 million in funding. It looks like the round isn't fully closed yet. I think they're aiming to raise a little over 30. But they're attempting to make a better chicken, plant-based chicken. This is a story we've all heard many times over the last five years. And what makes this particularly interesting, though, is sort of what Marianne said. There's a lot of money still pouring into this category, and yet the adoption isn't really going up as high as originally predicted a few years ago for sort of just the faux meat space in general. Yeah. Both Impossible Foods... Well, Impossible Foods may lay off up to 20% of their staff, according to a recent Bloomberg story, and Beyond Meat announced it would lay off 19% of their staff last October. But yet on early stage startup land, it seems like we keep seeing these faux meat companies raising funding. So it's kind of interesting, the disconnect there. It's so confusing. It's a disconnect. I think that's perfectly it. I don't know if you guys remember like the alternative dairy startups as well that were kind of on the rise. And I don't really understand like... This might be like a lame theory, but I'm like, I feel like it's so hard to prove that a startup is going to fail in this area until it's too late that like I totally see why early stage startups are still getting funding because it's like they all sound like they can do something. 
I'm sure investors are smarter than me in this, but that's just my take is that it's hard to know. So why not try to back one? No, you make such a good point there too, Natasha, about just like the whole like the plant-based dairy and stuff. I just buy the Trader Joe's brand. Me too. And so it's like, I don't know who the all the small brands are. And if like Trader Joe's comes out with their own like foam meat, I guess I buy their foam meat already. I buy their soy riso and stuff like that. Like I just, the soy riso is really good. So um, good. <laughs> but I just, I feel like, I don't want to say there isn't a place for these companies because that's definitely harsh and an oversimplification, but it is weird in my mind, just how much funding is still pouring in here when we aren't seeing the adoption and kind of the big players can just release their own. Yeah, I have to say I was pretty surprised. I'll be honest with you, because I feel like, as you mentioned, some of these bigger players seem to be struggling. So I feel like you're you're pretty bold if you're out there raising and still trying to like build a company in this space. Like, you, you know, you, you must have a lot of confidence in what you're building and investors as well, because I feel like this is a tough area to be in right now. What if like one reason behind this is just like the uptick in climate funds? Because like you can make the argument that alternative meat is for the climate, right? Mm, That's a good point. Yeah, there is that argument, supposedly. I think companies are wise in not making that argument anymore because some research has come out that says it's really actually not that much better for the environment. Like same like oat milk. Like one of the nut milks is like worse to make than regular milk. I think it's almond milk is like worse to make than regular milk. Oh no, that's the one I drink. But it's like some of that stuff has been like, okay, like, yes, you're reducing like your carbon footprint in X way, but you're not actually in like Y. It's like buying a Tesla. <laughs> like you think it's making a difference, but if you bought a used car, you'd be changing the world. Right. Well, with that, those are our deals of the week. We're going to make a hard pivot into our first theme. We have somehow avoided talking about two companies, like I said, for at least a few weeks on the podcast. First, FTX. Oh my gosh, who missed talking about that acronym? I, You know what? I didn't, but the news <laughs> this week actually caught my attention for a couple of reasons. And I would say, first of all, because they're, they're related, even if they're not the same. So for one, FTX, desperate for money, is trying to get back the political donations that it made at the height, right, of its growth, which is kind of, well, not kind of, it's absolutely crazy. And I think we talked about this when we prepped and Becca's like, oh, no way, no way in hell is this going to happen. I think it's fascinating that they're even trying. And then before we get into all that, the, the second bit of news, which I kind of thought was coming, but finally did, is that Robinhood said it's planning to buy back shares from the entity, the SBF entity that took a 7.4% stake in the company last year, I think it was. I had thought about that from the very beginning. I was like, oh my God, you know, they took like a seven something percent stake in Robinhood. What is going to happen with that? So now we know Robinhood is like, okay, we're going to try to buy back those shares. Yeah. So that's a lot of money that Robinhood is going to have to spend a lot of headache to buy back those shares, which if I were Robinhood, I'd be really like pissed off right now. That means FTX will get money from Robinhood if this if it happens. I guess so. I'll say I don't understand all the technical details of it. But yeah, you know, FTX trying to get money back with the political donations. We don't think that's going to happen. But if this Robinhood thing goes through, then yeah, I guess they would. Becca, you made a good point on why it might not happen. Tell us about that. I think what's the most like what I'm not really putting together in my head of how this could work is if these were, say, donations in like a random non-election year, I could see maybe it would be possible to get them back. But from what I know about a lot of his sort of like political activity is he invested into specific campaigns and 
at the time, like all the FTX stuff was happening was when the elections were happening. Like these elections have already happened. So in my mind, I'm like, wouldn't these campaigns, foundations, PACs spent this money if it was invested to prop up specific or donated to prop up specific candidates in an election that has already since passed. But again, Mm -hmm. like Marianne said, I definitely, this is not an area I will pretend to have any kind of expertise on, but that's sort of the first thing that came to my head. I'm like, how do you get money back if it's already potentially been spent? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Mm-hmm. In Jackie's piece, she cites Yesha Yadav, the professor of law and director of diversity, equity, and community at Vanderbilt, who said something that made me kind of feel like there is a chance. They said, quote, the issue here is that recipients will have to litigate to show that they have right to that money. They may choose to do this if they do not have funds or if the sums are large. In any event, it can be a painful process and a costly one. So the easier course of action may be to return the funds. And I hate the phrase time will tell, but like, like that's kind of the vibe that people who have expertise in it are saying. So like the fact that this person didn't go on the record to say, oh my God, like it's money's gone, it's spent by makes me feel like there's like this added wrinkle to what you're saying, Becca, because I agree, like this sounds crazy to say out loud, but if they spent the money, are they going to have to spend their own money, like own money to give back the money they use? Right. Like what money? Yeah. Where does it come from? I don't see it happening. Also, just like if that's true, that just in general, makes me think very differently about donations. Me too. Because in my mind, I've never thought of a donation as being something I could just ask back if I needed it. So, like, that's very interesting. And I'm sure, obviously, corporate donation stuff is very different from whatever small change I'm doing, but... That's just something I never really considered. Yeah, it could definitely set a precedent. And I I don't mean that in a fully legal sense. Maybe this has happened before and we're missing it. But like in Jackie's story as well, they said something around like, we also don't even know who received donations. We know that like, if one person does it, others may do the same. And it's kind of like a domino effect. I mean, so many questions. It's actually a super interesting development. I'm glad it's not about like SBF speaking on Substack. Like it's actually a little more interesting to talk about. It is. And I just, it just adds to the whole, you know, the whole, you can't make this up when it comes to the FTX saga. Like it just never seems to end with new developments. And I'm curious one day to see the movie about this. I know. Imagine trying to piece it together. No, you're so right. Like sometimes these news stories, it's just like, oh, great. They're doing this for the third time, but like it's important. But like I'm getting bored and like I'm not getting bored of FTX. Every new development, I'm like, what are they doing now? Oh, my God. How will they? All right, fine. I'll I'll let it wait and see, I guess. Like, <laughs> We should do like an FTX Mad Libs where we just like put in adjectives and like see if it's one day true and not publish it because that would be fake news. But an FTX bingo card. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. OK, I think that has to happen. Well, I feel like another show in the works is definitely going to be Twitter. I feel like the movie is probably happening and I'm just waiting to be tapped on the shoulder as one of their power users (laughs) to speak (laughs) up. But the reason we're talking about Twitter this week is that Aaron Wu from The Information had a piece saying that Elon Musk Twitter has around 180,000 US subscribers two months after launching Twitter Blue, which is less than 0.2% of its monetizable monthly active users. That's pretty insane. I don't even know what to say other than the fact that I'm so happy we have numbers around to see how Twitter Blue is actually doing because the check marks are not cutting it in terms of signaling these days. Yeah, I mean, that same story said that there's 290,000 paying subscribers globally, which would imply just 28 million in annual revenue, which is really little. I mean, I was very surprised at how little 
or how low that number was. I think what's really interesting here is just like it proves once again that if everyone's using something for free for 10 years, they maybe don't want to pay for it after literally 10 years when it's getting worse. So I think that's definitely something that Elon didn't anticipate, but I don't really know how if you think about that sales pitch, like pay for this now after you haven't been for so long and now it's worse. Like, I'm not surprised that many people didn't sign up, but I definitely thought it would be more than that. Like the number is very stark compared to what I thought it would be, even though I didn't think it would work. To be clear, though, this is just one percentage of Twitter's total revenue, right? It's uh, Mm -hmm. 1% of Twitter's total revenue. So I'm afraid the way I said it implied that that was like 28 million in annual revenue for the company as a whole. But that's not true, right? It's just 1%. Yeah, it's 28 annual, 1% of the annual. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I just want to make sure I, I clarified that. But yeah, I mean, Becca, totally true. It's it's kind of astonishing to me with so many people using Twitter. It's hard to believe that something that's just like so prevalent and widely used could be struggling financially, right? Totally. It's just crazy. But it goes to show that like just because something is widely used or just very well known or very popular doesn't mean it's making money. And I think it's interesting too, it just all of the other news coming out of Twitter recently and like features that they're launching, features they're taking away and thinking about like a good friend of mine is a digital humanities professor and she's writing a book about the radicalization of the far right online, but mainly on Twitter. And the fact that they're shutting down like the API tools, she was like, oh, so now you want me to pay and now this is going to hurt my research and I'm going to have information that's not accurate if I can't data scrape anymore. Like, yeah, now I want to pay you money. Like, Yeah, not happening. Totally. And I think that's the issue is like no one knows what they're signing up for when they pay for Twitter. Like the features change, you can either cancel or you might not be able to cancel. Like I've seen tweets about that too. I was talking to a former uh, Twitter employee yesterday who was saying how like the competitors, unfortunately, even with everything we're talking about, the competitors can't just be better than Twitter. They need to be like 10x, 20x better than Twitter because it's still the network. So that's like always the tension I find here is like it might be struggling as a business, but we're not getting off of it. So like these two things are going to continue to exist even as developments continue to complicate them, which just I think makes us all feel confused. I feel conflicted. Mm hmm. The only other Twitter news of note is that it is launching Twitter Blue in a bunch of different regions. I think now it has 15 total regions. And this week, those regions include Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, India, Indonesia, and Brazil. So clearly Twitter is trying to up that revenue. And let's see if other geographies surprise us. Apparently Clubhouse is popping off in India. So there might be different habits all around the world. But I'm going to put a pin in that. And we're going to rewind a little bit, Marianne, to something you covered before all your electricity went out. So tell us what's going on at Stripe. Yeah, yeah. So Stripe was in the news quite a lot over the past couple of weeks. And it started out with them reportedly telling employees that they were either going to, they were setting a 12 month deadline to either go public via direct listing or to fundraise. And then it came out that they were supposedly trying to raise capital. About $2 billion at that time was reported at a $55 to $60 billion valuation, which is lower than the $95 billion it was valued at in 2021. And then it came out the next week that Thrive Capital, returning backer, was leading this new investment into Stripe with a $1 billion, which is quite a lot. And that it was actually trying to raise $2.5 to $3 billion at this valuation. 
I reached out to Thrive, reached out to Stripe, obviously. Nobody would say anything. I think it's safe to say that this deal is probably very much so in the works. Yeah. The fact that it's at a lower valuation is not so shocking. I mean, we've seen a ton of down rounds. I mean, look at Klarna went from 80, what was it? 45 billion to $6 billion, like a huge drop in valuation. So when you compare that, it's not even that massive of a drop. But I think, you know, it shakes up the whole fintech world because Stripe was the the most valued privately held company ever when it raised that round at a $95 billion valuation. And even it is struggling at this time. And another reason this made the news is that supposedly it's a tax bill that they're having to pay, right? Related to employee options and, and, you know, a bunch of detailed stuff that I won't get into here, which is unusual because typically when when companies are trying to raise, it's for growth or adding on Mm -hmm. new products or expansions, but trying to raise so you can pay off a tax bill is highly unusual. I was just going to add, like, I feel like Stripe in general confuses me. They're like so big that all of their movements, for example, when they set the timeline that they were going to be trying to do something in 12 months, my perspective, and this is like just me putting all my cards on the table. Like I was like, okay, so Stripe probably doesn't need money. Like they're planning to go public through a direct listing. Nonetheless, like that's their plan. So the fact that this all came out after now confuses me on like one, how well capitalized Stripe is as a business Two, 409A valuation changes up until this point have very much been classified as like just great for employee options. But then three, introduce the tax bill and everything again gets questioned and kind of confuses me. So I wish I had a better analysis there. I just feel like I want to say it for anyone who's listening that I am also confused at this company and what the hell they're doing. (laughs) Oh, Becca, you said that there's a lot of secondary activity going on because this is something that was new to me, but I'm not surprised at and I would love to hear more about it. Yeah. And this is what I think is such an interesting piece of just like the broader conversation around these big companies seeing valuation cuts. I wrote a piece on secondaries last Friday, and one of the people I spoke to, uh, the CEO and co-founder of a company called Caplight, which tracks secondary transactions specifically through mutual funds, was saying that every time one of these big companies announces a lower valuation publicly, their secondaries activity like spikes because people know it's a good company and people know it was just a little overvalued. So they're all like clamoring to get in at this lower valuation on the secondary side. So he was saying it happened with Klarna. It's happening with Stripe currently. So it's always good to see that even like with some of these, this drop in valuation that No, like the market still values this company a lot and definitely sees the future for it because people, it seems, are kind of jumping in now at this 55 to 60 billion valuation and in some cases increasing an existing stake in the company, which is pretty interesting. Bargain shopping, right? They're like, this is just a good time to buy. And that just is like proves that stuff was overvalued. But I mean, there are definitely some companies that are going to come out this year that are going to either fail or like just evaporate because they don't have a business model. But Stripe, Klarna, Chime, like those are not going to be those companies. Those are real companies that people still have a lot of confidence in. Another deal, though, that we didn't talk about, and I just want to bring up at least because I thought it was significant enough, is that Marquetta bought a fintech called Power Finance. And it was a $275 million all cash deal, which is very large, especially considering that Power had only raised about $16 million in funding in its in its short life. I think it was like a two-year-old company. So pretty interesting deal. I talked to the new CEO, Simon Khalaf, who took over for Jason Gardner very recently in the, yeah. in the role of CEO. But I thought, you know, pretty massive deal, Marquetta's first acquisition. So that's just another example of, of fintech 
doing fintech. I think we're going to see more M&A this year. I was so happy to see the price. Please more of that to whoever decided to share that. Like, I am so happy that we know how much it costs. And I think that makes a bigger difference if I can make the hot take. Like knowing an acquisition price makes a lot bigger difference than like rumored that this company is going to lead this deal. Like, I don't know. I'm more excited about the specifics here. I'm over the everything else. In a market like this, we're not going to believe that the deal is a positive unless you give us that number to show us it is. Exactly. Exactly. Especially because they raised 16 million. Like if they were a bootstrap company and they exited at all, maybe there's a little bit of like more. Probably this was great. But yes, I agree completely. Let's end with AI. We've talked about it a bunch on the show. But as always, Dom from our TC Plus team is making us think about it differently. She had a piece out. The headline is so good. I want to just repeat it. Quote, AI is the next frontier, but for whom? And she really looks into this idea, how AI impacts people of color and just anyone who doesn't fit the homogenous builders who are leading the way. Becca, I would love for you to run through the data on what Crunchbase is telling us. Definitely. So Crunchbase data showed that in 2019, U.S.-based companies with at least one Black co-founder raised $40 million out of the total $19.95 billion, with a B, in venture funds allocated to U.S.-based AI companies. U.S.-based companies with at least one Black co-founder picked up $308 million out of the $41.57 billion, with a B, general venture funding in 2021, and $54 million out of the $23.48 billion in 2022, which I definitely like the point that Dom is making because it hadn't really occurred to me. AI has been this huge flurry, lots of different angles kind of flying around. But hearing about it from that way of like, oh, well, where's the talk about fixing all those bias issues and all of those past sort of wrongs that early AI companies had? And it's like, oh, you're totally right. We have not really heard anything about that yet. Agree. Dom really does make us think about these topics in a way that we just hadn't previously. I really applaud her for that. And I hadn't thought about it either that there's a bias in these AI products, largely due to the lack of diversity on the teams that are making the products. And then just the seeing the numbers there, like we knew that it was probably pretty low, pretty low percentage, but didn't realize it would be quite that low. So super good analysis. And it's like telling us, one that they're, you know, I'm not saying that it's enough, but it's showing that there are these diverse startups that now people should be looking at. There's no excuse that there are not people of color building an AI. I mean, to have such a lame belief would just be upsetting. But two, like similar to crypto, I think about how crypto, when it was like in the rise of its hype, everyone was like, this will change how we think about art and empowerment and attribution and ownership. But we need diverse people at the table. And I know there's been so many communities and efforts and funding that's gone towards people of color building crypto companies. But I'm, I guess I feel like there was enough of like a explanation as to how crypto messed that up that I hope AI kind of learns from that and starts to not just hire like a head of diversity, but like developers, founders and addressing how AI tools, you know, literally I was reading a piece from the student in the Berkeley paper who said like, so many of these AI tools are consistently sexualizing women as well. And like, I think mm-hmm. that came up with Lenza AI and we have so many examples now. I don't know what else there is to say. Especially with like Microsoft leading this huge investment into open AI. It's like, obviously Microsoft has proven in the past they can write past wrongs. And I'm not saying that they haven't thought about this since the release of Tay and by accidentally creating a racist AI chatbot a couple years ago. But it's just like, somehow this just didn't come up in that conversation that 
like no. the same company was investing and they had like had all these issues in the past. So it's good that Dom is like raising the flag here because it is definitely something that should be a bigger part of the conversation. Yes, it should be a bigger part of the conversation. It should be the people in the company, at the company, backing the company all around, especially with something that's going to change our world as much as AI hopes it will. But that is all we have for today. Thank you so much, Marianne and Becca. As always, this week has been, I know, exhausting, tiring, dark for some of us who have just had not <laughs> had electricity. I can't believe you came to the show, Marianne. Thank you both for making it. We've got it back. Happy to be here. <laughs> Everyone else, you can catch us back on Monday. Use code equity for 50% off annual passes of TechCrunch Plus. And you can also use it if you plan on coming by TechCrunch Early Stage in April. It's in Boston, Mind Becca's old stomping grounds. And you can use code equity when you're buying founder and investor passes there for 40% off. So lots of exciting things. Just put equity wherever you put in anything and you just might find a discount. Who knows? Just try it. Just try it. <laughs> As always, you can also follow equity on Twitter at EquityPod. And we'll be back very, very soon. So talk then. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, TechCrunch senior reporter, Becca Skutak, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development. And Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back next week.